that was a big reason I wanted to move to America because I knew every single model make of uh, motorcycle uh, that was sold in America even before I came to America as a kid. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's a document floating around Silicon Valley. You'll find it in the boardrooms at General Catalyst, Bain Capital, IVP, Lux Capital. And here at the table I'm sitting at, at Insight Partners. We wanted to bring the ecosystem together so we can all commit to innovating responsibly and create a framework. Ganesh Bell at Insight talking about the document, the framework that venture and startups are using as a written agreement about AI. The framework actually has five different things. One is... The first thing is actually committing to responsible AI. The second, transparency, followed by predicting the risks of AI and auditing and testing. And finally, a promise to make improvements as needed. Pretty simple, really. A promise made by startups to venture firms that fund them. And it's not a, it's not a tough bar. You know, it, be responsible, be transparent. Exactly. It is, it is just an additional hygiene that we're bringing to the boardroom, if you will, right? Have you had anyone object to it? No, not really. Uh, give me fact, what devil's advocate. Give me, give me the objection argument. The objection argument seems to be, again, you have to ask the people that are objecting. If you listen to them, I actually only hear the fact that they agree with this. They agree with the fact <laughs> right. that AI needs to be regulated. They agree with the fact that we need some frameworks and guardrails around AI. They agree with the fact that AI possesses lots of possibilities as well as dangers. So really the uh, only valid point I've seen is the forcible enforcement of this in startups and you know, bringing right, down and the innovation is, bar. There is no punishment phase. There's no, yeah, there's no if you don't then. Yeah. So yeah. we saw the EU regulation uh, come to pass. The details of it are still yet coming. And I'm sure there will be some level of compliance period, for example. Right. And you have interesting cases that are developing like uh, OpenAI versus uh, New York Times. Right. So there's similarly a lot of things that startups have to go through on basic HR policy uh, legal policy, what is fair use, what is training, and what is generally acceptable, and also be more mindful. Some of this is also just being mindful. The agreement, called the Responsible AI Agreement, was created in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Commerce. If there were to be uh, an objection, I you know kind of searched around for it, uh, but 
I didn't find anyone particularly worried or upset that the government was involved, that the Commerce Department was involved, that, you know, there, there is this pushback, particularly among conservative circles, about, you know, how much government should be involved in social networks and what social networks should have to report back to the government, that kind of stuff. Um, there was very little pushback as far as private industry, private money, and the U.S. Commerce Department, you know, teaming up even if the, with the best intentions. I agree with you. <laughs> the, the only uh, pushback we've seen from some star investors uh, looks more like grandstanding and wanting to appear to be more founder-friendly and casting others uh, who are taking an initiative here to not appear as founder-friendly. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are being founder-friendly because our founders need these resources. And I think the government has taken the right steps by putting it in the Department of Commerce, for example. And we do have examples of great regulation in FAA, FDA, and, you know, AI is a horizontal technology. It's going to affect every single regulatory body out there, every single uh, technology uh, department. So I think it is important that we are at the, uh, you know, early stages of this, working as a community. So I think it's great that IBM, Meta, and everybody else launches uh, AI Alliance, and there are other institutions like that. So we will be part of as many as we can be, so we can bring that learnings and help our entrepreneurs. You and I sort of made the analogy of AI policy being a little bit like DEI, that you know these are just things that you have to deal with. As I'm thinking about AI, the, the analogy, having moved to Silicon Valley in 90, what was it, seven, is the dot-com boom. But that's, a, that's an imperfect analogy. Um, actually, you may be onto something there. Um, if you think about, you know, AI, I came to America about 30 years ago. Uh, AI was the hottest thing when I came to grad school. AI? Yes. And we went through a long, cold winter. Uh, I was just, you know, last month I was at uh, NeurIPS, a conference in New Orleans where it was 13,000 machine learning, data science, AI people, which has been going on since, I think, 1987. Okay, so this has been long happening, just like, you know, the internet was right. around they, they, for a they, long, The dot-com boom didn't just come out of nowhere. You the, know, somebody invented the Ethernet and, and yeah, the, the DARPA net was there. web browser. Exactly, and, right? And then something happened and our expectation of the world changed. We could no longer forecast and everything seemed like a great idea. And we had to go through lots of the early versions of, you know, search engines and social networking. Those don't exist anymore, Right. The search engine now is very different than what uh, AltaVista was. Right. Right. So I kind of, there is an analogy there. Maybe that is how AI is happening right now. But the way to think about it is also just like mobile and cloud was big, technology shifts grew the pie, if you will, and also forced the, what is called the digital transformation, right? Which is every industry, every business getting reimagined in data and in software. I think AI is just an accelerant. And uh, in some ways, I think the AI transformation is going to be even bigger because I think it will force us to reimagine things for the very first time. Because mobile and cloud, in a lot of ways, you got away with just re-implementing the same idea. Whereas with AI, and again, we've had this thing that is discriminative or predictive AI for quite some time. The big imagination that has captured everybody's imagination over the last uh you know, a uh, year or so is this generative AI. Right. And that is still in the early days. 
Yeah, right? that's that's generative AI is what really, you know, hey, write me a limerick that uses, you know, my dog's name sort of thing. It, it's sort of basic, but it really captured people's imagination cap- in a way that, you know, like predictive AI that, you know, predicts uh, a windmill, uh, yeah. you know, uh, is going to fail this part. Uh, that that doesn't quite excite the soul the same way. Yes, exactly. And, and AI has been meaningfully deployed in many applications, many industries creating, you know, billions of dollars of value, both societal and economic over the last decade. And generative has a much bigger potential. So I think the reimagination of pretty much everything that we know is really what's exciting. And also why... You know, we care about safety. We care about lots of the right tools that we want to have for the next generation of computing. Incumbents, I, I think, have the advantage here, right? I mean, in the dot-com boom, any any people with a with a computer and, and internet access could create, you know, something.com. Uh, it's different with AI because of the data sets you need. Yeah, I think that is a really good uh, point of debate that we have internally within the firm, and I always have with the friends, do incumbents automatically win? It seems like in the early innings, uh, the incumbents probably have the biggest halo effect of AI um, because they have distribution advantage. They can quickly incorporate AI into their applications. Um, but what we haven't seen is this unfold quite a bit, right? If that was... If you take that as an analogy, incumbents win when new technology shifts happen. That hasn't been true in the past. It wasn't true yeah. in cloud. A- AOL is it wasn't, not a, It yeah. wasn't true in mobile. And the reason that isn't true is not just because the tech... Yes, AI is easier to incorporate than any other technology in the past because it's just an API call away. But I think that is only because we're just seeing the early ideas. We still haven't seen the fully reimagined ideas where generative AI is a native first-class citizen at the core. That would mean disrupting existing products, existing businesses, which incumbents are unlikely to do so because of the traditional you know, uh, uh, you know, blocks that they have in terms of innovative dilemma, if you will. Right. And I think startups that are working on the next generation of ideas and I'll give you just my own industry. I grew up in enterprise software. I've been fortunate to be in every stage, every size of a company, from being an entrepreneur to taking companies to IPO to working in really large conglomerates. I've seen innovation happen at all levels. Innovation can happen and will happen at all levels. But there's a reason why startups come and challenge a new model. A big part of that is also culture, data obsession, and a new way of looking at things. Outsiders often create new things. Um, so I do believe that we're probably seeing the early days of this. And I'm optimistic that uh, it's not going to be just the incumbents that win. Sandhill Road will be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Can you explain on a very basic level closed source versus open source in AI and why the average person should should care? Let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can ask ChatGPT if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in closed source, right, uh, and it's interesting, one of the biggest closed source models is called OpenAI, right? right? And every other large closed source model Effectively, the code is not available for others to understand, nor are the parameters and the model weights that are used to tune the model. So it is effectively a black box. You have to, you can train the model and it can produce a output and you have no way of understanding how the model actually arrived at where it arrived at. Whereas in open source, the code is available for everybody to understand, to understand the inner workings, debug, and also consistent uh, work together as an ecosystem to contribute to open source. You also understand the tuning of the open source models because they call, they're called model parameters and weights. So you understand the weights so you can tune the model differently. So you know how to align the model to a certain behavior if you want. Mm -hmm. If you want that uh, chatbot, for example, to be more accurate, you can do that. If you want it to be more playful, you can do that. And in some cases, accuracy is not as important as coming up with something more creative. So you can play with that. So just being able to have a full understanding of the code base, be able to openly contribute to it. And open source, uh, by definition, also could be more secure because more people are looking at the code, therefore you can contribute to improvements in vulnerability that you see. Both are perfectly reasonable ways of, of going about the, the problem. Absolutely, both are perfectly reasonable ways. We see companies innovating on both closed source and open source, and I think we need both. What do you use AI for? I mean, do you, do you incorporate it in any way in, in decision-making or in creative thinking? Uh, in everyday life, I use yeah. quite a bit of AI. Um, I probably have one of the largest uh, HomeKit automated home instances. So I interact with my home through Siri. Right. And there's quite a bit of uh, AI in it in terms of it's automating its own scenes and creating, in fact, my phone's trying to listen in <laughs> on a command right now. Yeah, lights I, are going <laughs> on and off in your... Yes. Yeah. And uh, my, one of my favorite examples of machine learning, the original forms of machine learning is, you know, you know we all drive cars. We all have traction control safety systems. Um, I ride motorcycles on a racetrack. Uh, I ride a, a motorcycle called Aprilia. It's one of the fastest, most sophisticated super bikes you can ride on a racetrack. And um, it has a sophisticated traction control system that actually learns the tire and recalibrates itself and has on-the-fly adjustment of safety maps. So it makes mere mortals like me feel like racing <laughs> gods. So you got a cheat code on your on your motorcycle. It 
It's a cheat code and also a training tool. It's kind of like a safety net. So I can keep moving the safety net. Sure. So when I go on a track day uh, early in the morning, you know, the track is cold, the tires are cold, my brain's not warmed up. So I can set the safety level to be the highest. And as my brain warms up, tire warms up, and the track warms up. And as I get into the uh, track day, I can move the safety net further and far. And so we can still catch some of my mistakes. What what first attracted you to racing motorcycles? It's you know it it obviously sounds terribly dangerous, uh, but what was the first moment? The first motorcycle ride? The first oh this is something I want to do? Oh, I grew up in India, uh, where at that point in time I think I don't uh, everybody had to ride a motorized two wheeler, even if you didn't like it because that is the only way to get around. And it's actually, you know, it's a big step up from having a bicycle. My uncle used to work uh, for a motorcycle company called Royal Enfield. They still make motorcycles. In fact, they uh, export them to the US right now. And uh, growing up in India, all my biggest sporting heroes were all Americans. Um, because Americans used to dominate the world Grand Prix motorcycle championship, now called MotoGP. Um, and that's, was a big reason I wanted to move to America because I knew every single model make of, uh, motorcycle, uh, that was sold in America even before I came to America as a kid. <laughs> that's amazing. That's so very cool. The strange, the funny thing, the story there is like when I grew up in India, my uncle used to work for, another uncle used to work for a advertising firm called, what is now called Ogilvy and Mather. And as a school kid, I would get dropped off, wait for him to finish up his chores and go home with him because he'll buy me treats on the way home. <laughs> um, they would have magazines in lying around his office of all the magazines around the world where they placed ads. This was Forbes, Fortune, Rolling Stones, Cycle World and Car and Driver. Guess all the things that I'm interested in today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is your mother? think of your driving motorcycles? Uh, she probably thinks it's a... Wait, probably. She uh, hasn't said? <laughs> no, it's a, see, it's a commute thing, right? When you grew up in India... Oh, you, I see. Okay, an Indian it, mother would have very, maybe but, a different uh, attitude towards... Yeah, it course. is a... Everybody commuted on a motorcycle. Right, but so what, it was what, not are you, what are you driving these things at? 160? Say again? How, how fast are you driving these things? Uh, on the street speed limit? No, no, of course. Yes, on the track. Uh, on a racetrack, you you know, you know, can't get up to that fast. Um, yes. The California tracks that I ride on, the Sonoma Raceway, the uh, uh, Laguna uh, Seca, which mm -hmm. is a phenomenal racetrack. I knew about that racetrack as a kid in yeah. India. And then uh, Thunder Hill, which is one of the racetracks up north here, it's probably the fastest track. There, my motorcycle, I can, on the straights, you can get up to 165 miles an hour. Okay. Yeah, that just seems like mother disapproval levels of speed. Uh, yes. I think she translates it to kilometers. And <laughs> it sounds cheap, you know, slower maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Ganesh Bell, Managing Director at Insight Partners, once named the 11th most creative person in the world. Do you know who got 10th, who kicked you out of 10th? Oh, you do know. That. I I do not know the ten. I should know that. I'm just but, saying. But, but, but I thought eleven is a cool thing because I've always been a big uh, fan of Spinal Tap. And <laughs> you did turn it up to eleven. I, I did turn it up to eleven. <laughs> Next week on Sand Hill Road. 
kids who grew up in in low income situations, when they try to get themselves out, it takes some time. Absolutely. It didn't take you very much time. You bought your parents a house while you were still in college. I did, yes. How did that happen? Frederick Gross, deal lead for Wellington Access Management. That's next week. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.